All right, you guys have a seat. If you need some notes, there's notes in the back, and there's also notes at the front at this podium. Um, a couple of you guys from last week uh, asked for notes from last week. So on the, on the podiums or on the music stands in the front and the back is this week, week three. I have extras from last week. If you want week two, you can pick some of those up here at the front when we're done. Um, one disclaimer, we're working on, uh, up on the screens, Catherine's upstairs, we're working off of a uh, replacement computer. Ours is being fixed, and so it's kind of, uh, it's the one we have up there is not as good as what we normally use, so if it goes crazy, Catherine will fix it. I have every confidence that she will fix that promptly. So don't throw anything up there, don't roll your eyes at her, don't uh, be ugly or hateful or anything like that. Catherine's the best, except for Lucas. He's pretty good, too. Okay, we're talking about the truth on Wednesday nights. That's our, our series. And we're talking about things that we need to know with our mind. We're talking about the things that we need to believe with our heart. And we're talking about things that we need to share, opening our mouth and sharing with people. We're talking about things that we need to defend, that we can argue and, and reason with people and explain what we believe and why we believe it. And we had one week of introduction, and then last week we talked about the gospel. What is the gospel? And we just defined it, and we defined it really simply. Any one of you guys could have memorized that before we even finished the talk last night. God is holy, man is sinful, Jesus is the answer. People need to repent and believe, and we're called to follow Jesus. Those are the big headings that we use to summarize the gospel uh, when we try to share it with people. This week is really, I think, equally as important as last week. We've defined the gospel message. What is the message that we're sharing with people? But this week we're talking about conversion. And in this study, as we're talking about the truth, this lesson is like where we set the target up, okay? Last week is, this is what you need to do when you're sharing with people. This is the message we're communicating. This week, we're setting this big target up at the front, and we're saying, this is what you're aiming for. When you go out and you share with people that God is holy, people are sinful, Jesus is the answer, we need to repent and believe, we need to follow Jesus. When you share that with somebody, what you're aiming for is for them to be converted to faith in Jesus Christ. The problem when I say we want people to be converted, everyone says, well, that seems just really obvious. Of course we want people to be converted to faith in Jesus. The problem is we don't have a biblical understanding, and I don't mean like we, just you, but I just mean Christians in the United States. We don't have a biblical understanding of what conversion really is. We've cheapened it, and we've simplified it, and we've turned it into things and called things conversion that aren't really conversion. And so we need to just, before we go any further in this study talking about the truth, we've said this is the gospel, but now we're looking into other people, right? Or maybe ourselves, if we need to look at ourselves, and we're saying this is what conversion is. This is what it means for someone who's not a follower of Jesus to then become a follower of Jesus. And so it's a very basic, very foundational lesson. So I'll start with one story. This story is from 2006. This was before Alan was my neighbor in Oklahoma. And uh, Brooke and I lived in Kentucky. And this is a church. Now it's called Life Point Church. I don't, I don't know exactly what happened. When we were 
with these folks. It was called Limestone Baptist Church. It's in Bedford, Indiana, which is kind of up in the middle of the state. We were living in Louisville, and Emma had just been born. Brooke was not going to go back to work uh, where she worked at Humana. I had just finished my master's degree, and I was getting ready to start my doctorate degree, and I needed a job really, really bad. And so I had sent out bukus and bukus and bukus of resumes, any job, any church thing, anything. And uh, this is one of the places that I sent one to, Limestone Baptist Church in Bedford. And they called me. A guy named John Black called me, and he said, I'm chairman of the pastor search team. Would you come and preach for us. We just we need a preacher. We need some somebody to come fill in the pulpit from week to week. Would you come for a few weeks? Not like come and let us vote on you. Just we just, we want you to come preach. And so we said I would be happy to do that. So a couple of weeks we drive up there. Uh, it was about a two two hour drive or so up to Bedford from where we lived. We drive up there and I would preach in in this church. And one week we went up there and I preached Sunday morning. And the folks were super nice. Uh, somebody in the church said, let us, let us buy your lunch before you go home. And they wanted to take us out to uh, uh, Bob Evans. Any of you guys ever eaten at a Bob Evans? They wanted to eat at a Bob Evans. So not my favorite place, really, but they paid, so it was great. So we went to Bob Evans. And uh, so the sermon that I preached that morning at Limestone Baptist Church, these people were there, was about conversion, Okay? I talked to the folks that morning about this is what conversion looks like. And if you know people, and it doesn't matter if they've prayed a prayer or they went to VBS or they've been baptized or they've done all these religious things, if they haven't truly been converted, they're not converted. Right? It doesn't matter what we call conversion. This is what it is. And if they haven't experienced that in their life, then they're really not a follower of Jesus Christ. They're not saved. They're lost. Okay? That was the message, the gist of it. So we're sitting at Bob Evans, me and Brooke and Emma's on the end and this couple. And the lady, just she, it was so awkward. She just will not stop. Oh, the sermon was great. It was so great. I just loved it. I loved it. It was so great. On and on and on. It was the best thing. It was, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Okay, okay, great, great. We order. And then she starts to talk about her son. And uh, she starts to tell me how her son... Uh, has been in a little bit of trouble lately. He's been making some bad decisions. And he's not been going to church for a very, very long time. And he's not interested in, in spiritual things really at all. And his life does not look like it ought to look. She knew that as his mother. She was not happy with that, right? Right after praising my sermon, she tells me all these things about her son. And I'm thinking, what? Man, this is really sad. This my sermon hit home to her because her son, her son is not converted. And then at the end of telling me about her son, she says, but we know this. We know when he was six years old, he prayed to receive Jesus into his heart. So we know he's going to heaven. At least we have that. And I'm not telling you this story to say that that lady's an idiot or a fool, okay? I'm telling you that story to say the things that we're talking about tonight They're really easy for us to sit in this room and read the Bible verses and say, "Uh uh-huh, I mean, it's right there, it's clear, it's obvious, it's not debatable. Yes, I agree with that, that's what conversion is. But then when we step outside of this room and you start to think about your kids or your grandkids or your parents or your grandparents or your loved ones and you start trying to apply what we're talking about to them, it's really tough, 
right? It's really, really tough because sometimes you have to look at people that you love very, very, very much who have done religious things in their past and you have to look at them and you have to say, I don't know what happened back there, but it wasn't conversion. And you may think that you're a follower of Jesus, but you're not a follower of Jesus. And that's a hard thing to do. It's hard for me to do and I know that it's hard for some of you to do. We also want to think about, this is where we'll end up, If our goal is conversion, and we're going to lay out what that looks like, that's the goal. We have to make sure that when we're sharing the gospel with people, when we're doing things at church, when we're witnessing, when we're raising our kids, that all the things that we're doing are pointing people toward real conversion. That we're not pointing people towards some sort of watered-down idea of, well, I prayed a prayer, so that means I'm going to go to heaven when I die, and the rest just doesn't really matter. And sometimes the way that we talk, the way that we share the gospel, the way that we do things at church leads people to believe that sort of uh, false teaching. So we're going to lay out conversion, all right? Here's some definitions. These are not on your outline. I don't know that you need to write these down. These are just dictionary definitions to sort of get your mind rolling. Uh, Conversion. The act, should say or, act or instance of converting or the process of being converted. Don't you love it when you look up a word and they use that word in the definition twice? That is not helpful. The first part is not helpful. Second definition. I I really like this for the purposes of what we're talking about, by the way. The adaptation of a building for a new purpose. Uh, So in Kingfisher, when I was there and I was living next door to Alan, we converted the old gym into the gathering used to be a nasty old smelly gym and we turned it into a really really nice fellowship hall and we had some really talented ladies that really did all the work and I just stood behind them and said didn't I do a great job and the ladies decorated it it was fantastic but we converted it right we used to use it for this thing but now we use it for this thing and there was a complete metamorphosis a complete change so that's helpful Conversion, changing one's religion or beliefs or persuading someone else to change theirs. I think that's what most of us think about when we think about conversion, right? I just need to talk somebody into changing what they believe and then sort of, quote-unquote, seal the deal by getting them to pray a prayer that says, yes, I agree with you now, I love Jesus, great, and we say, now you're converted. I like, for the the purposes of what we're talking about tonight, I like that second definition better than the third one. Because I think the third one waters down how the Bible describes conversion. And I think the idea of converting a building or a room or something like that is much closer to what we're talking about tonight. So let's start off with a few basic assumptions about conversion. This is just me trying to level the ground so that you and I are all on the same playing field and we're all beginning with the same assumptions. Assumption number one, in the end, many who think they are converted will be shocked to discover that they are not. Whatever you want to believe about conversion, this is not debatable because this is, first of all, it's in the Bible. It's straight out of the mouth of Jesus. And Jesus just point blank tells his guys, on the last day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did this and this and this and this. And Jesus will look at those people, many of those people, and say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're going to say, but we know you. We invited you into our heart. We prayed a prayer. We went to VBS. We got baptized. We did all this stuff. And Jesus is going to say, the issue is not if you knew me. The issue is if I know you, and I never really knew you. What he's saying is you were never really converted. And in that teaching from Jesus, 
one of the things he's telling his guys is, people will be shocked to hear that. Okay? There will be people who genuinely think they are converted, and they're not. That's the fault of pastors who gave them false hope. That's the, the fault of people at funeral services who just preach everyone into heaven because they were really nice. That's the fault of people in churches who go out and share the gospel and say, all you have to do is just pray a prayer, and you pray the prayer and say, great, I'll see you in heaven someday. There's plenty of blame to go around, but there will be people who will be shocked on the last day to learn that they are not converted. Okay? Assumption number two, don't stone me and run me out of the Baptist church here. Those who do not endure in their faith to the end were not truly converted. And some of you, you're getting squeezy, squeamish. You're getting uncomfortable. You're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's a Baptist church. Once saved, always saved. Come on. That's just basic Baptist stuff right there. Look, I'm with you, okay? Once a person is genuinely saved, they will always be saved. I believe that. I promise I believe that as much as anybody in this room. The problem is we're sometimes confused or people are sometimes confused about who is genuinely saved. And sometimes we slap that label on somebody who hasn't been genuinely saved and we give them this assurance of, well, I'm, I'm good forever. This is fantastic. They haven't been tr- truly or genuinely converted in, in the first place. So you can look up 1 John 2.19. I'm going to let you look all these verses right here up later. John says in 1 John 2, 19, there's some people who have gone out from us. They've, they've left our fellowship. They didn't endure to the end. And it's proof that they were never really with us to begin with. Those who went out from us were never one of us in the first place. So if you don't endure to the end, you weren't truly converted. Thirdly, some people genuinely believe in Jesus, but some people believe in vain in vain. And this is 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul gives a great summary of the Christian faith. And he says to them, I hope that you're believing the gospel that I left with you, that Jesus was crucified, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. I hope you're believing this. But he says, I hope you haven't believed in vain. Meaning, there's a real kind of faith and then there's a believing in vain that's of no value. And that flows right into this next idea here. There's a kind of faith in Jesus that does not lead to salvation. And I know that this gets tricky, but you just have to use your brain a little bit when you're reading through the Bible. The Bible itself talks about a kind of faith, it uses that word, faith, that does not lead to salvation. And so in John chapter 2, it's one of the most interesting verses to me in the whole book of John. What it literally says in the Greek is, many people believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them because he knew what was in people. He knew their hearts. And he knew that although all these people were saying, we love you, this is great, we want to follow you, he looked at these people and he knew what was in their heart. He didn't entrust himself to them is what the text says in English. In the Greek it says he didn't believe in them. He knew their hearts. It was vain faith. It was not faith leading to salvation. And then this is also connected. Okay, We're just flowing from one idea to the next. There's a repentance that leads to salvation and there's a repentance that leads to death. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 7.10. There's godly sorrow and there's worldly sorrow. 
Godly sorrow leads to salvation. It's genuine repentance. Worldly sorrow just ends up in you feeling guilty. Right? Peter sins against Jesus the night he's betrayed, and he goes out and he repents godly sorrow. Judas sins against Jesus the same night, and he goes out and he has worldly sorrow. He cries. He he weeps. He feels really bad about what he did, but there was no repentance. It was just guilt, guilty feelings about how it made Judas feel. And there's a difference. Repentance that leads to salvation and repentance that leads to death. Here's a few biblical pictures of conversion. And look, you guys could go through the Bible. You could list dozens and dozens. But I just pulled out some of my favorites. One picture of conversion. Rahab. When the spies come see Rahab, do you remember the story in Joshua? They come to see her. And Rahab says to them, We've heard everything that the Lord has done for you. We know all of it. We know about the stuff in Egypt. We know about how he he took out those two uh, kings, Sihon and Og. We know that he's with you. We know that he's the God of heaven. He's not just some localized, geographically bound deity like we believe in. He's the God of heaven. He's the one true God. We know all of this stuff, right? The truth, something that you have to know. And she said, we know it. Plural pronouns. We, the people of Jericho, know what happened. We've heard about it. It's been 40 years you've been wandering around in the wilderness. We've had 40 years to think about what your, your God did to Pharaoh. We know it was not a faith that led to salvation except for Rahab because she was changed. And she said, I'm with you guys. I don't want to stay here with these, with these folks. I want you to spare my life, and when you leave, I want to go with you. I want to be one of you. I don't want to be a Jerichoite. I want to be an Israelite. She converted Okay, so it's a picture of what it looks like. Um, Ruth, another picture of conversion. She left her people. She left her home. She left her gods. She took an oath in the, the name of Yahweh. So there's a picture of conversion. One of my favorites, how about Naaman? You remember the story of Naaman? He wanted to be healed of his leprosy, right? So he went to Israel And the prophet told him, you need to dip in the Jordan River, and he didn't want to do it. He wanted to do something great for God to earn his healing. And the little little people with him said, look, just do it. We've come all this way. You might as well try it. So he gets in, and he dips all these times, and he comes out clean, healed, perfectly healed. And the picture of his conversion is not the healing when he comes up. Here's the picture of his conversion. He goes to the prophet, and he says, look, I work for a guy back in Assyria. I got to go back. But I want to take a bunch of dirt from the, the land I'm standing on. And I want to take it back with me to Assyria. And I want to set up an altar there where I can worship the Lord in my home. And I remember reading that as a kid and just thinking, that's just weird. Dirt is dirt. Who cares about dirt? You're just taking a wagon load of dirt and dump it. And you're going to dump it at home. And it's going to get mixed up with the other dirt. And then it's just dirt. Nope. What in the world? This is what Naaman is saying. 
I believe that the Lord Yahweh is the one true God, and I believe the promises that he made to Abraham, that he was going to give Abraham this land, that he was going to give Abraham descendants, and that he was going to send the Messiah. And as proof of that, I want to take a little bit of this promised land with me. And when he takes the promised land with him, he's saying to the prophet and to all the Israel, I'm leaving Israel, but I'm not leaving Yahweh. I'm still trusting in his promises and resting in his promises. And one of those promises is dirt. I'm giving this dirt to Abraham. And I'm taking this with me to say I'm part of you guys and my faith is in him. So it's another picture of conversion. He's changing his beliefs. He's changing the God that he worships. How about Zacchaeus? You know the story of Zacchaeus. The law said after cheating all these people, he had to give back what he stole plus a small percentage. That was what the law said. And his heart had been so changed, he'd been so deeply converted, he didn't want to just do the bare minimum. He said, look, I have to give back all that I stole in a small percentage. I'm just going to do, I don't know, four times what I stole. I'm not just looking for the bare minimum to get by. I've been changed. I'm a new person, and I want to go over and above. So he's converted. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, salvation has come to this house. And then last one, um, obvious, Saul. Complete change in his life. Life is headed in one direction. He meets Jesus. It's headed in a new direction. He's converted. Okay? Let's talk about conversion in the New Testament. What does it look like? This first idea is really important. And this, if you get this idea in your head, it will keep you from a lot of crazy teachings that people call Christian. All right? Grace and repentance, and faith, and baptism, and church are all connected in the book of Acts. I'm going to give you a second to write those down, and then I want you to think about them. Grace, repentance, faith, baptism, and church, all connected. When Luke told the story of the early church, right, in the book of Acts, that's the book of Acts, he's telling the story about the church. When a person was converted to faith in Jesus, all of these things were involved. And when Luke describes a person being converted, you can assume, in your mind, all of these things happened. God gave them grace, they repented, they had faith, They were baptized. They were added to the church. Now, here's the thing. When Luke tells the story, he doesn't always mention each of these every time. Even though they all go together, he doesn't mention each one every time. So think about the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up and he preaches, and the Holy Spirit convicts people to their heart. And you remember what they said to Peter? What do we need to do to be saved? And what did Peter say? Repent and believe no repent and join the church no believe no on that instance Peter said repent and be baptized so in high school I took a New Testament class as an elective and the guy that taught it was a Church of Christ pastor super nice guy Gene Shelburne writes a column in the Amarillo paper every week And a super nice guy. 
And he used to, from time to time, we would get on the topic of baptism, and he would say, look, I don't, I don't see why this is so, so complicated. It says right here, how, how, what, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. And he said, you have to be baptized to be saved. Believes in baptismal regeneration, that you're actually born again when you get baptized. And he's very convincing about it because he has a Bible verse to show you. So it's right here in the Bible. Peter said it. Repent, be baptized. That's what you have to do to be saved. You have to do it. The problem with that argument, some of you have friends who have shared something like that with you. The problem with that argument is there's other passages up there, for example, in Acts 16, where the Philippian jailer cries out, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus, you and your house, and you'll be saved. Did he not expect the Philippian jailer to be baptized? Did he not expect him to join the church? Did he not have to repent? All he had to do was believe? No. Luke doesn't ever paint the entire picture, but when you add all of those verses up, what you see is that when people get converted in the book of Acts, all of this stuff is involved. God's given them grace. He's changed them. They repent of their sin. They believe in Jesus. They get baptized, and they become part of a church family. Sometimes Luke describes different parts of that process, but they're all part of the process. They all go into conversion, okay? Secondly, conversion in the New Testament. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. It's Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. However, the faith that saves is never alone. It is marked by repentance and baptism. It's marked by it. It's the evidence of it. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Those are three of the solas of the Reformation. Sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christos. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. It's marked by repentance and baptism. We read Ephesians 2 Sunday, so you can look that up. Conversion in the New Testament. One last idea. New Testament describes genuine conversion as a radical change that results in faith in Christ and love for other believers. Those two things, you'd be amazed how often they're paired together. Faith in Christ and love for other people. Those are marks of genuine conversion. So if you want to look at somebody's life and you want to say, has this person been converted? These are some of the things you look for. Do they have faith in Christ? Do they have love for other believers? And you can look these verses up in Acts and Ephesians, Colossians. Paul is writing to these churches, Thessalonians. He says it to Timothy and to Philemon. He says it to a church in the book of Revelation. And over and over and over again, he says, hey, this is great. I've heard about your faith in Jesus and your love for all the saints. Over and over, those two things paired together. And he's saying, I have heard about evidence of your conversion. Your faith and your love for the saints. And I think there's a lot of people in the Bible Belt who think, well, what you have to do to be saved is love Jesus. Invite Jesus into your heart, trust in Jesus, have faith in Jesus. They're not so concerned about loving other believers in a local church family. And the New Testament just says those two things go together when it's real. Faith in Christ and love for other believers. Okay, You can look those verses up. Let's talk about... The four C's of conversion. 
this is just my attempt. I'm a simple guy. I like simple things. And I just want to boil it down for myself and say, what does it really look like when a person is converted? How, what is the target that we're going to set up here and we're going to shoot for? Okay, Four C's. The first C is comprehension. Do they understand the gospel? Before anyone can accept it, they have to understand it. That's why in this study we're talking about the truth. And the first thing that we're talking about is your mind. You've got to have an understanding of the gospel. In the United States, we're lousy at this. You know why we're lousy at it? It's because we're not patient. Because we like microwaves and fast food and streaming movies and instant now, on demand, give it to me five minutes ago. That's what we want. And we don't have the patience to sit down and talk with somebody about what the gospel actually is. Listen, if you sit down and you have a real conversation with a person talking about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of, of us and how Jesus died for us and what faith in him is like and repentance and following Jesus, you talk about all those things, you can't do that in three minutes, five minutes. If you're really going to engage somebody, you're going to have to spend some time doing that. Guess what? You might have to talk to them more than once. You might have to talk to them three times. You might have to talk to them four times. You might have to keep saying it over and over and over again until they understand it. And I can tell you on the staff side of being at a church, sometimes parents and grandparents struggle with this when, when it's their kiddos, right? A lot of times a parent or a grandparent comes and says, hey, little Johnny wants to get baptized. We're so excited. We can't wait. Can we do it today? Can we do it right now? Let's get him baptized. And you say, well... Tell me about little Johnny. Well, last night, we're eating dinner, and little Johnny asked a question about heaven. Okay. So that means he's ready to to accept Jesus. He asked one spiritual question, and you're ready to baptize him. He asked one question about heaven, or one question about Jesus, or one question about the Sunday school lesson, and parents get so excited. I understand the excitement. It's exciting when a light bulb goes off for your kids, especially a spiritual light bulb. You're encouraged by that. You're like, oh, I've been talking to them all this time. I thought I was talking to the wall. They have been listening to me. But sometimes you just got to slow down. And so when parents come to us, we say, okay, here's a book to work through with your kids. It's going to take you a while. Here's a book for you to work through. It's going to take you a while. And sometimes I give parents those books and they just like, uh, just pop their balloon. (sighs) You got to wait. You got to make sure there's understanding. Because if you don't do that in 10, 15, 20 years, little Johnny's going to go talk to whoever his pastor is at that time. And little Johnny's going to say, I'm so confused. When I was seven years old, I went and I told them I wanted to be baptized and they just did it and I had no clue what was going on. And little Johnny's he's confused. And it's a stressful thing for somebody to sort that out. So you got to have comprehension. Listen, when we're talking about eternal matters, it's not always the best idea to just boil it down too simply. Instead of saying, what's the bare minimum we need to share with somebody, let's say, Let's just share the gospel with them in its fullness and make sure they understand it. And that takes a little bit of time. Secondly, second C of conversion is conviction. 
conviction. You can gauge somebody's comprehension by asking them questions, right? You sit down and you quiz them and you sort of talk to them and you can see, do they understand the facts? You know as well as I do, this one's really hard. But what you're looking for is not just somebody who you say, tell me about sin, and they give you a biblical answer. You're looking for somebody who you say, tell me about sin, and they can give you a biblical, coherent answer, but then they can also tell you how they're broken over their own sin. And that might look different when you're 7 years old than when you're 18 years old than when you're 50 years old. But there's got to be some conviction there. It can't just be mental answers that you're parroting back. So you've got to look for this. When you're looking for conviction, I can sit half those kids down the hallway who are in Awana, I can sit half of them down and ask them questions about Jesus, and they can give me the biblical answer, right? They can spit it back out at me. But when we're talking about conversion, I don't just need somebody that can spit out an answer. I need somebody who can also say, here's the biblical truth about Jesus, and here's why he's the most important thing in my life. He has become the pearl of great price to me. He's become the one thing that I want more than anything else in this world. That's the difference that we're talking about. So you're looking for comprehension. You're looking for conviction. You're looking for commitment. Commitment. This might make you uneasy when I say it. We can talk about it later if you think I'm nuts. When somebody wants to become a follower of Jesus, I do not ask them to pray a prayer. I've never done that. I don't think it's wrong. I think it's fine if you do that. I just don't think you have to do it. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that you're saved by praying a prayer. It says you're saved by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus. So if somebody's talking to me and they say, I want to be a follower of Jesus, I don't need to hear them say some prayer after me that they don't mean and they're just repeating rote. What I need to know is, are you turning from sin and following Jesus, trusting in Jesus, and you're making a real commitment? Listen, Jesus had people come to him who were ready to sign their name on the dotted line, and what did he say? You need to stop and count the cost. You need to think about what you're signing up for. Like That's the complete opposite of how we do it in the United States. In the United States, we're so excited for anybody to come, anyone to get baptized, anyone to join. Come, 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 come. Let's do it as fast as we can. This is great. And Jesus is standing opposite of that saying, you probably shouldn't do this. It's like he's trying to talk people out of it. Slow down. If anyone wants to follow me, you have to deny yourself daily and take up your cross and follow me. Are you sure that you want to do that? Are you really serious about making that kind of commitment? When you are talking with somebody about following Jesus, you need to be honest with them about what they're signing up for. Don't say to them, all you got to do is pray this prayer, and then once they pray it, say, okay, now this is what we expect of you. That's the bait and switch trick. You can't do that to people. Jesus never did that to people. And so when you're talking with somebody about conversion, you say, do they get it? Is there comprehension? Is there conviction in their heart? And do they understand what it means to make a commitment? And lastly, number four, church. And we live in the Bible Belt, which is a little bit different than the rest of the country. 
which means we have a lot of people who do not attend church who would still tell you they are a Christian, right? If you just poll people in Odessa, Texas, we just crunch the numbers. How many people live here? How many people are in church Sunday morning? We add it up. There's thousands and thousands of people not in a church on Sunday morning. But if you crunch the numbers and you ask people in Odessa, Texas, are you a Christian? There's going to be very few that say, absolutely not. There's going to be a lot of folks that just say, yeah, of course. I mean, we still live in a place. It's not like the coasts of the country. Uh, it's not like our neighbors to the north in Canada. It's not like Western Europe. We still live in a place where there's some remnant of cultural Christianity, where people just are Christian because that's just what they are. And so in a place like this, I hear people say all the time, it's usually people who don't go to church, well, you don't have to go to church to be saved. You don't have to go to church to go to heaven. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And when I hear that, I, it just goes all over me. I, I just think that is the most nonsensical, ridiculous thing I have ever heard come out of somebody's mouth. No, in the first place, no one said coming into this building makes you a Christian. No one said that. No one is so foolish as to believe that. On the other hand, you're telling me that you are a follower of Jesus and you don't want to be part of the one organization he left behind on this earth. You want to follow him, except you don't want to be a part of the one group of people he left behind on the planet. I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense to me. And it doesn't fit with what you see conversion looking like in the book of Acts. People say that to me and I say, wait a minute, if you're a follower of Jesus, that means you've been given a spiritual gift. And Paul says to the church in Corinth that your spiritual gift has been given for the common good. It's not for you to use, it's for the people in your church to benefit from. And you say you want to follow Jesus and you want to receive that, that gift that he's given you and you, you're going to steal it from his church? You're, you're going to steal it from him? I don't understand that. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So when you're looking for conversion, these are the things you're explaining to people. These are the things that you're talking to people about. One last thought is this, okay? And this is where I kind of started off in the, in the beginning of the evening. If the goal is conversion, our methods have to move people to conversion. If that's the target that we're shooting for, then we have to be very careful as a church and as individuals that when we're talking with people, we're moving people toward that actual target. So if you have somebody who says, look, we need to simplify the message. People are unchurched. They can't understand what we're talking about. We just need to simplify it, take all the churchy words out of it and just really boil it down, take out anything that's offensive, anything that might bother somebody. People get uncomfortable when you talk about sin and hell, so we're going to take that stuff out. We're not going to talk about that. You're changing the message. You're not leading anyone towards real conversion. You're leading them towards some sort of spiritual decision, but it's not conversion to Christianity. When you replace Jesus with heaven... You're not moving people toward conversion. When you talk to somebody 
And the biggest argument that you have for why they should accept Jesus is, well, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? That has nothing to do with Jesus. Zero. You're not moving toward somebody towards being converted to faith in Jesus. You're moving them to say, well, I don't want to go to hell, so I guess, yeah, I want to go to heaven. Well, that's not conversion. That's not it at all. Sometimes when, when we as churches, we do big events, right? Somebody asked our church a while back. I got a call and they said, hey, hey we're putting on this big, this big citywide thing, this big rally thing. and We want you guys to be a part of it. It's going to be the greatest. We're going to have so many people. We're going to have all this stuff. It's going to be great. And I start talking to them and I start asking questions. And it's completely clear to me that the goal of this event is to get people at the end to sign a card and raise their hand and pray a prayer. We don't want to be a part of that. Have at it. It's all yours. I don't want to be a part of anything that moves somebody just to a point of decision where they don't understand what discipleship looks like. I don't want to move people to a point of confusion where they think they've done something spiritual, but they haven't really been converted to faith in Jesus. And so as you think about this issue, your, uh, your methods have to match the goal and the target that you're shooting for. So look... I gave you all kinds of verses on this sheet, and I hope that when you leave Wednesday nights, you go back and you look at some of these, and you can look at these pictures of conversion, Rahab and Ruth and Naaman and Zacchaeus, and and see what conversion looked like in their life. I hope you go back and look at this section, the assumptions we made about conversion, where Jesus had some things to say, and, and John and James and Paul had some things to say. I hope you'll think about those things. And I hope you'll look these verses up in Acts. I know I gave you a whole long list of them. We could spend all night just flipping around looking at them. But I hope that what we do in here is something you take with you out of here and you're thinking about it. You're mulling it over. And you look that list of things up and you see how they're all connected. And uh, if you have questions about the stuff we talk about on Wednesday nights, I'd love to visit with you. And uh, look, I, I do not always say things as clear as I want to say them or think I say them. And so sometimes you may be confused, and that might be my fault. It might not be your fault. So come and, and we'll visit about it and we'll talk about it. But we're going to end with prayer. And as we pray, I want you to think about, uh, I want you to think about yourself, first of all. And I want you to think about what we've talked about, conversion here. And I want you to think about if this lines up with your life, yes or no, with what your experience has been. And then I want you to think about some of the people in your life, maybe it's kids or grandkids or a neighbor or a coworker that you're trying to talk to, and think about if I want that person to be truly converted, how do I need to talk to them? What do I need to say to them? How do I need to approach them? And uh, we're going to just end by asking God to give us some wisdom. So let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we're grateful for the chance to think. We are grateful for your word that guides us, and I pray that, that we would not only be people who study here in this room, in this building, but that we would take your word with us, that it would be a regular part of our lives, and that you would speak to us through your word. Father, I pray for the folks in this room, and I pray that you would help us to be honest in examining our own lives and the spiritual, religious experiences that we've had, and that we would be honest enough to see if they line up with the Bible, and that your Spirit would guide us in thinking through that. 
And we also pray for the folks who are on our hearts tonight as we've talked about true conversion. I think you've probably laid people on our minds and on our hearts. Um, kids, grandkids, friends, co-workers, and Father, give us wisdom to know how to talk to people, what to say to people. Um, give us a kind spirit as we talk about these things with folks. Uh, help us to be clear and biblical, but help us to be gentle as we share. And Father, we pray that you would use our church and you would use our, our families and you would use us as individuals to lead people who are lost to a genuine experience of conversion, that we would be patient in that process, that we would be faithful to your word in that process, um, that we would point people to Christ alone, we would call them to count the cost, that we would do all the things we've discussed tonight. Give us wisdom in that. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.